Turn with me, please, to the first chapter of the book of Philippians, Philippians 1. I'm sure you know that the uh, Apostle Paul was a hardcore con. He was a repeat offender, a three-time loser. He spent a lot of time in Roman jails. It uh, gave him an opportunity to uh, catch up on his correspondence, and uh, it afforded him opportunity to learn a great deal uh, about God. I uh, uh, have spent some time in some of the jails that uh, Paul spent time in. Uh, last uh, summer, when we went to Israel, uh, those of you that were on that trip went to the uh, Fortress Antonio, and that was one place where Paul was in prison in Jerusalem. And then we went down to Jerusalem and spent some, or to Caesarea rather, and spent some time walking around the area near the uh, the amphitheater there by the Mediterranean, and that's very close to the place where Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea. Uh, Paul was imprisoned twice in Rome, once under house arrest and once in the uh, infamous Mamertine dungeon. And I had an opportunity to sit on the floor of the Mamertine dungeon and read through the book of Second Timothy, the book that Paul wrote from that, uh, that dreadful place. And then a friend of mine and I traveled through Greece some years ago, and uh, we went up to Philippi and discovered the place, the inner prison. Uh, it was marked there in the ruins of the city of, of Philippi where Paul had been imprisoned there. One of the ironies, I think, of, of Paul's life that he not o- was he not only imprisoned in Philippi, to which this book was written, but uh, he wrote to this church from a prison in Rome, or at least from house arrest. And uh, John Landreth and I found the place in Philippi where he'd been imprisoned. It was raining like crazy, and we were sitting there in our raincoats singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, because uh, Paul and Silas sang when they were in prison, and the curator of the little museum there, the elderly Greek fellow, wandered over and looked at us as though uh, uh, the elevator didn't run all the way to the top floor. <laughs> and uh, he said, What are you doing? And... Uh, John said, we're playing Paul and Silas. And the man said, uh, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> he was a believer. And we had an interesting time chatting uh, with him. But uh, as you know, this is the book of Philippians. is one of the so-called prison epistles. It was written from, uh, from prison. He was under house arrest in the city of Rome when this, when this letter was, was penned. Now, the, the first chapter of Philippians revolves around three statements. The first is in verse 3, my remembrance. These are Paul's reminiscences, his memories of those in, in Philippi. Chris talked about that section of the first chapter last week. The second phrase is in verse 12, my circumstances. And he talks about his circumstances in verses 12 through 26, and then in verses 27 and following, your conduct, my reminiscences, my circumstances, your conduct. And those are the three three main ideas around which everything in this chapter revolves. Now, today we're going to talk about Paul's circumstances. And as we know, his circumstance uh, was this. He was in jail when he wrote this letter. Now, let's begin with verse, with verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that <clears throat> my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, that's the theme of this, of this paragraph. Adversity 
means advance. Opposition is an opportunity to manifest the, the life of Christ. Now, that's an important principle to learn. We're going to see how that works out in this section, but it's one that, that has to work out in our life. One test of how well we know God is that we understand this principle. Adversity means advance. What, what do you do when, you, when your boss cancels your vacation? How do you respond to that circumstance? How do you react when your secretary fouls up your airplane reservations? How do you respond to uh, an alcoholic husband or an alcoholic wife or a drug-abusing child? How do, you, uh, how do you react to sickness, ill health when you've been healthy all of, all of your life? How do you respond to these things? One of the tests of how well we understand the character of God is that we see adversity not as a setback but as an opportunity to advance. Now, there are three things that Paul says about, about his circumstances. The first is found in verse 13. Uh, let me go back to 12 because uh, you have to see verse 13 in terms of verse 12. That's the end of the sentence. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment or my bonds, the same word that he uses in verse 14, so that my bonds in the cause of Christ or for the sake of Christ uh, have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Now that's the first result of Paul's uh, circumstances. The gospel is manifest to the Praetorium. Now, the, Paul that, uh, the word that Paul uses for Praetorian guards here is actually the word for the place where they were housed. It was the word for their barracks. So what Paul is saying is that the gospel is manifest in the barracks. That's the first result of his adverse uh, circumstance. Now, uh, the, the, the young men that were housed in these barracks were called the Praetoria. And uh, these were the elite, choice-picked young men of the empire. During the reign of Tiberius, one of the earlier Caesars, uh, he drew together out of the Roman army uh, a, a group of, of, of special people, crack troops, that were there to protect the emperor because very often his, uh, his life was, uh, it was precarious. Some of the Caesars were assassinated, such as Caligula. And so they, they gathered a, a sort of secret service, much like the secret service that protects our president, uh, whose job it was to protect the emperor. And, and the Praetoria were these fine young men, the elite out of the empire. They served for 12 years, and then they were pensioned. They received a full pension. They often became very wealthy. Uh, normally, they stayed in Rome, and, and these men became the senators and the kingmakers and the leaders and the, the political heads of organizations in, in Rome. So they were a very prestigious bunch. Years ago, I had an opportunity to... Uh, to go back to Washington, D.C. to the presidential prayer breakfast, and I was late getting there, and I wandered in through the wrong door, and I walked into the, to the ante room to, to, uh, through one of the outside doors of the hotel where the breakfast was being held, and uh, there were a group of men standing in there. They are all dressed exactly the same. They all had on blue suits, and they all had the same kind of haircuts, and they had these little flags on their collars, and they all had these beady black eyes. <laughs> And I realized that I'd walk into, walked into a bunch of Secret Service men, and they all looked exactly the same, just uh, very bright, very uh, uh, 
very well built young men and, and, and uh, when I saw him I thought of the Praetorian Guard that was the sort of situation in which Paul found himself himself these fine young men that he was chained to in four hour shifts 24 hours a day now I want you to think about this a little bit the, these young men would come into Paul's apartment uh, we know from descriptions of Paul contemporary descriptions of Paul what he looked like he was small and sort of gnarly looking he had bow legs and I suppose he looked like a half, he had legs like a halfback because he'd walked all over the Roman Empire. And uh, sort of a big nose. And he would be sitting in his apartment. And they would uh, fasten the handcuffs on his wrist. And they would sit down next to him and look over his shoulder while he penned the books of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. And he would turn to them and say, tell me, what, what is your philosophy of life? And are you interested in spiritual things? Let me tell you about the Lord Jesus. And here these fine young men were trying to live their quiet pagan lives in the barracks. And every day they were dragged out kicking and screaming and chained to the Apostle Paul for four hours. And you begin to ask yourself, who is the prisoner? And uh, these men were going back to the barracks, and they were talking about this strange man and his strange ideas. And, and one by one, these men were coming to know Christ. You want to know how I know that? We turn to chapter 4, verse 22. Well, let's start with 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, who, who, who was that? Well, it was these young men that were chained to the Apostle Paul. Paul gave them the gospel. They went back to the barracks and shared the gospel with their friends who shared the gospel with their friends, and the gospel was spreading throughout the Roman Empire. It's what you call a chain reaction. And uh, I, I often use this as an illustration. It takes a little while to... <clears throat> I often use this as an illustration of the principle that God can do exceeding abundantly above anything we ask or think. And Caesar became the chairman of evangelism for the Roman Empire. If you were going to chart this uh, course, if you were going to plan to evangelize the Roman Empire, how would you do it? Well, you'd want to get right to the center of the empire, right into Caesar's household. God did that for Paul. Uh, Paul went through Ephesus uh, a few years earlier, and he said to the, to the Ephesian elders, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen to me there, except I know that bonds and afflictions await me wherever I go. My only desire is to finish my course in the ministry which God has given to me. He didn't have any idea what his course was. He didn't have a clue. But he knew what his ministry was. Wherever he went, he wanted to make Christ manifest, make visible the invisible Christ. And uh, looking back, we know what happened. He, he went to Jerusalem. He started a riot. He was imprisoned for his own safety. Then he was sent down to Caesarea, spent two years in Caesarea. Then he was sent to Rome. He spent two years in Rome. And it was there in Rome, chained to these Roman soldiers, they began to lead one after another to Christ. And the gospel went right into the heart of the Roman Empire. You couldn't have planned that if you'd schemed your whole life to produce that result. God did it. He got Paul into those circumstances which were anything but pleasant. But that became an opportunity for the gospel to advance. Adversity is an opportunity 
or advance. Now, that's the first result. The Praetorian Guard and others came to know that uh, Paul was there for the cause of Christ. Now, secondly, in verse 14, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, same word, bonds, chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul had apparently had one preliminary hearing. He'd made a brilliant defense of the gospel. And uh, the word was getting out that Paul uh, had, had spoken truth in one of the highest courts of the Roman Empire. And people were emboldened to preach the gospel. Now, that's often what happens. When we see some other Christians speaking out boldly, it encourages us to do the same. I think, for example, one of the chief advantages of the Graham Crusade of a few years back is not just the results that it produced from, from Billy Graham's preaching. Certainly that was significant. But I think the, the more significant thing is the fact that people began to get bold. They, they were courageous. The gospel was being preached everywhere. It was on the front page of the, of the uh, uh, Idaho Statesman. And uh, you could take off from things that were said in the paper and from, from things that were said at the, at the crusade. And you could share the gospel with your friends much more easily. I think that's one of, the, one of the results of this sort of thing happening. Though Paul's circumstances were difficult, his courageous proclamation of the truth turned, turned other Christians loose to preach the gospel. And that's the way it ought to be preached. You see, the most effective proclamations of the gospel come from you people, not from me. Not from the Apostle Paul. I mean, people expect us to talk about the gospel. That's what we get paid to do. Uh, we are professional Christians. Uh, we, we do it for a, you know, for a salary, but you don't, see. And therefore, the most effective proclamations of truth are done by you people out in your neighborhood, on your campus, in your office, wherever you go. That's why I think one of the best ways to evangelize the city of Boise would be to put all the pastors under lock and key. If, if you'd put them all in jail, uh, people, I think, would be much more bold to preach the gospel. That, and that's why when, when I first came to Cole, I got a lot, of, uh, a lot of static from people because I didn't give altar calls. And uh, they said, you don't have a heart for evangelism. Well, I tried to point out that, you know, no, I, I do. I, you know, I, I try to share the gospel with people as I have opportunities, and I try to encourage that wherever I go. It's part and parcel of our Christian faith. But I don't want you to bring your friends down here so I can evangelize them. See? I mean, they expect me to talk about God, but they don't expect you to talk about God. I was in a group of non-Christians uh, just this last week, and... One of them, I, the cat came out of the bag pretty early. They found out I was a preacher, and that ruined everything. <laughs> really, it did. I mean, they, it, they didn't know what to say. And they, everything I said from then on about spiritual things, they just discounted because, you know, that's what I get paid to do. And uh, afterwards, one of the men came up, and, and he said, uh, you know, you sure don't look like a preacher. And my wife said, you don't know it, but you just paid him the supreme compliment. <clears throat> but you understand what I'm saying? See, if, if, if the preachers were put away, the people of God, the other people of God, would begin to speak the truth much more boldly. Now, that's the second result of, of Paul's uh, imprisonment. Christians were gaining courage, and they were beginning to speak out boldly about the gospel. Now, their reasons for doing so... Uh, are described in the verses that follow, uh, verses that follow, verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, and yes, I, and yet I will rejoice. It's interesting that, that people could proclaim the gospel out of impure motives, but it strikes me that, that God very rarely sees a proclamation of the gospel out of pure motives. We, we all have impure motives, I think. And Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And much of our proclamation of the gospel is ego satisfaction, or you know, in some cases, churches proclaim the gospel because they simply want to enlarge their, their church role. They want more members to come. And, and I think a lot of evangelists on, on television and on the radio have another agenda that they're working on. Uh, and, and yet, the gospel is being preached and people are finding Christ. Now, I don't think that the message was distorted. Paul wouldn't have stood for that. Uh, in the book of Galatians, he says, if you preach a gospel other than the one we apostles preached, anyone who does that, let the, even if me or an angel, let them be anathema. See? Uh, he wouldn't have put up with a distortion of the gospel. But assuming that the message was clear and the essentials of the gospel were being proclaimed, Paul didn't care what the motivation was. It didn't matter. It didn't matter to him at all. The important thing was that Christ was, was being proclaimed. Uh, I, I used to have a Young Life Club in the city of Duncanville, Texas. I've mentioned it before to some of you. And uh, when, we, when we went, uh, Duncanville is a little rural uh, town just to the south of Dallas. And uh, there, was, uh, there was nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing being done for high school kids in that little town. I, I lived there for a while when I was a kid growing up, went to high school there for a couple of years. And, and we came back uh, uh, several years later and found that there still was nothing happening for high school kids. So a friend of mine and I started a Young Life Club. And uh, uh, as I've mentioned before, we were opposed. We were called Marxists or actually communists back in those days and uh, all sorts of dirty names. But the interesting thing was that a couple of churches in town started youth groups. They, they hadn't had youth groups before, but they started them out of envy, out of spite, really, or jealousy. Because kids were coming to the Young Life Club and weren't coming to church. And uh, looking back on that, I can just say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because they were reaching kids. They were proclaiming the gospel. See? Doesn't matter if they come to my group. Doesn't matter. important thing is that the gospel is preached. Now, that's Paul's point. See? Motivation may be bad. Message is clear. People are finding Christ. Paul says, that's all that matters to me. So two things are the result of his, uh, of his circumstances. Christ was manifest in the barracks, and Christ was manifest by the brethren. And Paul says, in that, I rejoice. Now, there's a third result of his adversity, and that is Christ was manifest in his body. Verse 19. For I know that this, that is this incarceration, this imprisonment, shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says the third result of his... Uh, uh, of his imprisonment was that he'd be delivered. He'd be delivered. 
the means he describes as their prayers and the lavish, rich provision of the Spirit. The word that he uses, provision, here is a very strong word. It means a lavish outpouring of the goodness of God upon him. So that through the prayers of the saints in Philippi and throughout the Roman Empire, prayers of God's people, and the lavish provision of the Spirit, he would be delivered. And secondly, he says something about the standard uh, uh, which he expected to maintain. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put, in sh- put to shame in anything. That is, he wouldn't capitulate. He wouldn't roll over and play dead. He, he wouldn't be intimidated by the Roman court. He wouldn't give way to fear, compromise, capitulation. He'd be tough. He'd stand tall. He would magnify Christ in his body, whether through life or through death. Which helps me to understand what he means by deliverance. He's not saying he'll get out of jail free. His deliverance, this is, by the way, this is the word for salvation. Uh, it's the same word that's used later in Philippians. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. So that he's not talking about deliverance from prison per se, but deliverance from his tendency toward cowardice or unbelief or, or whatever it might be that would that would prevent Christ from being manifest in his body, whether through life or through death. You see? So whatever happens to me, I want people to see the, vis- the invisible Christ through my life. I want to reflect and manifest his character, the fruit of the Spirit that we sang about this morning. See? The courage and the grace and the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the peace of, of our Lord Jesus. Wherever I go, whatever I do, whatever the pressures... Paul says, I, I, I want to manifest his, his character. And that will happen, he says, through your prayers and the lavish provision of the Spirit. Now, the key to it all, as he puts it in verse 21, is this philosophy of life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, there are two ways to look at that statement. And I have... Uh, I have pondered this thing and pondered it and I haven't decided which way I want to go so I'm going to give you both options because the wording and the context suggest one of one of two ideas and perhaps both are true maybe Paul is expressing both ideas in this one thought for me to live as Christ and to die as gain now Paul says for me living as Christ centering on Christ manifesting the invisible Christ wherever I go that's what matters he says to me doesn't matter if I'm in prison or out of prison I want to manifest Christ and to die is gain. Now, he may be saying that his death would mean more people would come to know Christ. He could be using gain here in the sense that he uses progress in verse 12. The things that have happened to me have proceeded under the furtherance of the gospel. He could be saying that my death will simply resolve. I want to die in such a way that people will come to know Christ. That's what he's saying. Same thing that's been said of the martyrs, the early martyrs of the church, seed of the uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's historically been true. Uh, there are stories uh, that both chill and excite you from, from, the, from the early church. There, uh, one story is told of a group of Christians in Rome who were marched uh, during Nero's uh, reign. They were marched to the Tiber River and stripped and forced to walk into the Tiber naked in the middle of winter, the dead of winter, and stand up to their necks in the Tiber River and 
until they uh, died of exposure. And they, they gathered around, put their arms around each other, and warmed each other as long as they could. And they sang hymns until one by one they slipped under the river and, and perished. And the story is told of Roman soldiers who stood and watched that that uh, remarkable manifestation of the grace of God and stripped off their armor and walked into the river with them and, and perished with them. Uh, now, that's what Paul means. I want, to, I want to die in such a way that, that others will come to Christ. Uh, I had the privilege some years ago, uh, years ago of, me, of meeting Festo Kivinjaro, who is the, was the bishop of Uganda during uh, the time of Idi Amin and the terrible atrocities that were visited upon Christians there. And uh, uh, he told a story. I just read this story a couple of weeks ago, which I would like to, uh, which I'd like to read to you. This happened in 1973. Uh, there was to be an execution of three men from his diocese. February 10 began as a sad day for us in Kabbalah. People were commanded to come to the stadium and witness the execution. Death permeated the atmosphere. A silent crowd of about 3,000 was there to watch. I had permission from the authorities to speak to the men before they died, and two of my fellow ministers were with me. They brought them in in a truck and unloaded them. They were handcuffed and their feet were chained. The firing squad stood at attention. As we walked into the center of the stadium, I was wondering what to say. How do you give the gospel to doomed men who are probably seething with rage? We approached them from behind, and as they turned to look at us, what a sight. Their faces were all alight with an unmistakable glow and radiance. Before we could say anything, one of them burst out, Bishop, thank you for coming. I want to tell you, the day I was arrested in my present cell, I asked the Lord Jesus to come into my heart. He came in and forgave me all my sins. Heaven is now open, and there's nothing between me and my God. Please tell my wife and children that I'm going to be with Jesus. Ask them to accept them into their lives as I did. The other two men told similar stories, excitedly raising their hands, which rattled their handcuffs. I felt that what I needed to do was to talk to the soldiers, not to the condemned, so I translated what the men had said into a language the soldiers understood. The military men were standing there with guns cocked and bewilderment on their faces. They were so dumbfounded that they forgot to put the hoods over the men's faces. Uh, the three faced the firing squad, standing close together. They looked toward the people and began to wave, handcuffs and all. The people waved back, then shots were fired, and the three were with Jesus. We stood in front of them, our own hearts throbbing with joy, mingled with tears. It was a day never to be forgotten. Though dead, these men spoke loudly to all of the Kazazi district and beyond, so that there was an upsurge of life in Christ which challenges death and defeats it. The next Sunday, I was preaching to a huge crowd in the hometown of one of the executed men. Again, the feel of death was over the congregation. But when I gave them the testimony of their man and how he died, there erupted a great song of praise to Jesus, and many turned to the Lord there. You see, that's what Paul is talking about. He wanted to die in such a way that people would realize that death held no, no terror for him, that his life was Christ. And uh, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that Paul uh, is saying, for me to live now is Christ, and to die is gain for me. Not only gain for the, for, the, for the church and for the cause of Christ and for his kingdom, but gain for me. Death is no big deal. It just means to gain more of Christ. That's all. I very often use this text in funerals, particularly uh, if I know there are going to be a lot of non-Christians there. That's always a great opportunity to preach the gospel. And I usually read this text and apply it to the, to the brother or sister who's gone to be with the Lord and say, for 
for Sam to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I point out that, that we can only say the second when we say the first. If for me to live as money, then to die is to leave it all behind. If for me to live as power, then to die is to, is to be impotent. If, if me to leave is fame and prestige, then to die is to be forgotten. But if for me to live is Christ, then to die is gain. So it may well be that Paul is saying simply that. That living means uh, Christ for me, and dying means gaining more of him. I'll see him face to face. And Paul says, therefore, dying is, is no big thing. It's no problem to me. Now, the reason uh, he may be saying that sort of thing is because what follows. Let, let me read on, verse 22. Paul has a problem. He's got a dilemma, which he states uh, in the verses that follow. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better for me, we could insert. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and faith and the joy and, the, and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul says, uh, staying behind is hard for me, but it's better for you. It would be much better for me to go on and be with Christ. That would certainly be, uh, be gain for me. And then having stated the problem, he answers it. As someone said, a problem stated is a problem has solved. And once he states the problem, he knows what the answer is. He, he, he solves his dilemma. He knows it's better for them to stay. His work is unfinished, and therefore he'll stay. Interesting principle that grows out of this, uh, this passage. You and I are immortal until our work is done. Augustine was the first to, to make that observation. We're immortal until our work is done. It's true of Jesus. The Pharisees came to him and they said, uh, Herod wants to kill you. They, they thought they'd scare him off. Jesus said, you, you go tell that old fox that I have work to do today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my destination. In other words, uh, Herod couldn't touch him until he finished the work that he'd come to do. And when he hung on the cross, remember what he said, his last words, one of his last words? It is finished. He did not say, I am finished. He said, it's finished, the work that I came to do. No one could touch him. Pilate had no power over him, as, as Jesus himself said. No one could touch him. Until he finished the work that he'd come to do. It's true of Jesus. It's true of Paul. Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except I know bonds and afflictions await me in every place. My only goal is to finish the course and the ministry that God has given to me. In 2 Timothy, looking back, hours perhaps, days and hours before he was executed, Nero took him out on the Appian Way and chopped his head off shortly after he wrote these words. He said, I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. Course. Henceforth, there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me, see, Paul. Paul knew that he had finished the course that God had laid out for him. It's true of me. It's true of you. No one can touch you until God says, well, I'm through with, with the work I'm doing in that person and through that person. Now, that's a very comforting thing. You know, I think of, of crib deaths and the death of, of small children. Those are always so, uh, seem so tragic. They hurt so much, and you think, here's a life wasted. But no. Now, see, little children are immortal till their work is done. 
And apparently whatever God wanted to do through that little life was, was done. And so he just took, took that little one home. I already see someone who's right in the heart of a ministry. I have a good friend, Paul Little, who used to be with University Christian Fellowship, right at the apex of his ministry, was killed in an automobile accident. We say, terrible tragedy. Well, it was for the little family, of course, but a great loss, their father and husband. But God was finished with the work that he wanted to do through Paul, and so he took him home. We're immortal until our work is done. And Paul could say that was, that was true of him. And because he knew that uh, he had work to do, he would, he would remain behind. Now, Paul's circumstances produced three results. The gospel was being proclaimed to the Praetorian Guard. Christ was being manifest in the barracks. Secondly, Christ was being manifest through the brothers. The brothers are being stirred up. Brothers and sisters are being stirred up to proclaim the gospel. And thirdly, the result, it resulted, his circumstances resulted in Christ being manifest in his body. He was seeing more and more of the beauty of Christ manifest in his life. And therefore, Paul could be optimistic about life. You see, this is what makes you optimistic. The key to it all was Paul's statement, For me to live is Christ. If for me to live is uh, uh white cottage with a picket fence and roses around it, then to be put in prison is to lose your life. If me to live is to make a lot of money, if you go bankrupt, then then to lose all your money is to lose your life. Or for me to live is my marriage and your marriage falls apart, then you lose your life. But if for me to live is Christ, nobody can touch you. Nobody can hurt you. Because Life consists of making him known now, and if you die, you just gain more of him. You don't lose anything. You gain your life, you see. So the key to making it work is that theme. And, and the question I have to ask you and I have to ask me, is that true of us? Is Christ our life? Do we want to manifest his character? Is that our primary goal, or is it to make money or to make a name for ourselves or conquer new territories or, or whatever. If so, we'll always be disappointed. Jesus said, if you try to find your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. And once you come to that conviction that Christ is your life, then you'll be the eternal optimist, believe me. I heard a story this last week about a psychiatrist that was working with two children, one of whom was a, an entrenched pessimist. He was depressed all the time. Nothing went well. So the psychiatrist put him in a room with uh, a bunch of toys and a... Uh, a uh, Coke dispenser and uh, TV uh, with a VCR and all sorts of goodies. And psychiatrist came in a little bit later and looked at him. And the little boy was sitting in the corner, wasn't wasn't playing with any of these things. And he said, "What's the matter?" And he said, "Well, they're not my toys. If I play with them, I'll break them, and somebody will jump on me. And and I don't know how to work the the TV. And I don't like any of the pictures that there you know you have in the uh, that you that you have here." And, and he said, I don't like Coke and so forth. So, you know, it was this terrible thing. So uh, psychiatrist, a little bit nonplussed. But there was another boy in the outer office who was a, who was a total optimist. He always looked at the bright side of everything. And uh, parents were concerned about the child because he just didn't seem to have a realistic view of life. So the psychiatrist said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. They put him in a room that was full of horse manure, about two feet of dry horse manure, and locked the door. And uh, uh, about an hour later, he came in, and the little boy was shoveling. 
And he said, what are you doing? He said, I know there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> now, see, that's what it means to be, to be an optimist. And you may feel that you're, uh, you're knee-deep. <laughs> but if you understand that Christ is your life, you can get out your shovel and you start looking for the pony. See? For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Let's let's stand, shall we? <clears throat> let's pray. Lord, what an encouragement, what an incentive to holy living. What an inspiration to uh, follow our example, in this case, the Apostle Paul, into a life of victory and conquest. We, we know, Lord, that there are times that, that our circumstances get us, that we're overpowered and overwhelmed by them, and, and we give way to despair because we have unrealistic expectations about life, and we don't see how, how those times of adversity can be times of advance for the, for the church and for us. And so we, we pray that you teach us this principle. We know this is not something we can decide on. It's not something we can merely do, grit our teeth and do. It's something you have to do for us. It's, it's a change in thought that you have to make for us. So we ask that, that through our prayer and through the prayer of, of the other believers around us and through the lavish provision of your spirit that we would, would be delivered from our despair and that we would see that Christ is our life and that we would be centered on him. As we go from this place, Lord, we ask that we would make visible the invisible Christ in our, in our circumstances, no matter how terrible or defeating they may be. Help us to be your men and your women, wherever we go, whatever we do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.